You're listening to the 12 Stone Podcast. For more information on our eight locations or service times, please visit 12stone.com. Now enjoy Pastor Kevin Myers as he delivers in the beginning. The first message in the series, Grown Up Faith. When I was a kid, I would ask my dad questions that are like kind of kid questions. Stuff like, hey, who's your, who's your favorite kid? Is it me or Katie, my sister? All right. Yep. So I'm just going to talk, Ben. Yep. I loved baseball, and so I'd tell Dad, like, do you ever think I'd be as good as Nolan Ryan? Because uh, I really wanted a pitch. And um, I never did, because I was never that good. Um, Not too long ago, there was a thing that went on in my life where when I heard God has a plan, it made me angry. I just, I really didn't like it. Ansley and I, my wife, uh, found out we were gonna have a kid. And it's the craziest feeling, right? Me, a man-child, is now gonna have a kid. A little over a year and a half ago, my youngest brother, Austin, went back to college. I remember my parents were a little worried about him. Um, He was just dealing with a lot of stuff in his life at that point in time. As I got older, uh, life got more complex. And when life got more complex, questions naturally get more complex. I remember my dad, he sat me down one day and he said, hey, Jeremy, your mom's an addict and we're not gonna make it. And you and your sister Katie, you're gonna go live with your grandparents. Shortly after being brought into this world, something happened, we don't know what it was. Uh, there's all these theories, but we, we, we can't specify what it, what it was exactly, but she went into heart and lung failure we don't, we don't know what to do. How is this something that anybody deals with? You know, your brand new six-hour-old child is now, is now dying. I got a phone call from my mom in the middle of the night. I can't get a hold of Austin. I don't know where he's at. He's not answering his phone. And we hung up, and I tried to go back to sleep. And I laid there for a few hours, and I was a little restless. And then I got a phone call from my dad. It was probably 3 a.m. I pick up the phone and he said, he's dead. Somehow this was all part of God's plan. How is my daughter, my little girl, how is her dying in a bed somehow part of his plan? And I was really confused because I knew God was good and he was like he loved marriage and but I never understood that and I would ask God like why would you do that so he spent 64 days in the ICU um, and miraculously God did something to her body stitched everything back together made her heart work the way it was supposed to made her lungs work the way that they were supposed to I was really angry and I was really frustrated and I was really confused and had all these questions for God. And it sent me down a journey of just asking God questions, things I'd never really understood. Like, why would you let this happen to me? Why would you let this happen to my family? How does all of this fit into God's plan? And now I'm older, and I'm married, and I have kids, and now more than ever, I don't wanna screw things up. Like, I can't get it wrong. So I'm at the point in my life where questions just aren't enough. I need answers.
So welcome to Grown Up Faith. And the truth is we all have questions. And some of those questions are really weighty, just like the stories that were shared with you. Our family has a combination of a blessing and burden that we're right in the middle of. Between last night going to bed and waking up this morning, my firstborn son, Josh, and his wife, Christina, made their way to the hospital and gave birth to our third grandchild, my first son's first, Braden, his first boy, Braden Allen Myers. And so really delighted and celebrating with them. And simultaneously, um, there's some weight in this conversation for us. Uh, I talked with my son uh, this morning about 6.30. And as he shared the news, he also shared there were complications. And it's complex. So in the birthing process, there was some trauma. Uh, Braden uh, was deprived of oxygen uh, for a period of time. I'll, I don't know and have all the details. Um, and so there's uh, brain damage is what the doctors are saying. And they got to see their little boy, but they took him to Grady uh, Hospital. And he's in the NICU unit. Uh, and for the next three days, uh, we'll be in this um, cold therapy is what they call it. We're just catching up on all this information. And quite honestly, I, I don't want to be here. I want to be with my son. I want to be with my grandson. But as I talked with my son, Josh, he said, well, you can share it with the church because at one side, it's a celebration. On the other side, there's great concern. And I knew that if we shared it with you, you would pray. So could we take a moment? Father, all of us are carrying some weight of burdens in our life. And so when we share the story, and I even speak of my grandson, Braden, uh, it comes with a great sense of blessing and there's so much good and a great sense of burden. And I know many are praying with me right now and saying, God, you are a gracious and kind and loving God. And we thank you for the gift of this young life. And now we ask that you would protect his life. Uh, we would ask for the miracle of no brain damage. I don't know how you navigate all that, God. I don't know how this will all play out. I'd pray over my son and my daughter-in-law, and I would pray, God, that you would knit this family together with their little girl, Breland, and that you would bring something miraculous of your hand in the midst of uh, uncertainty. We're just waiting, God, and our dependence on you is great. So take the prayers of your sons and daughters and uh, be as merciful as we know you to be. In Christ's name, amen. So, yes, I... I know that for us to navigate through this season requires us to grow up, really all of us in some sense to, to grow up. It's why the title of the book uh, that I'm excited to bring to the life of 12 stone and the substance and the things that God has stirred in us for a grown up faith. And it's on all of us to grow up because when you grow up, you get the better things. When you grow up in marriage, you get a, a, a better life. When you grow up in leadership in business, you get God's better life. When you, when you grow up in character, you get God's better life. When you grow through hardship and uncertainty, God, if you'll follow him, will form himself more deeply in you. There is a growing up process that is intended in faith, and, and, and it's modeled and talked about in Scripture. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'll just put it on the screen. We'll pick it up in verse 14, so that we may no longer be 
spiritual children. The implication is, is, is spiritually speaking, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Everybody say that with me. We are to what? Grow up. Let's do it one more time so I can hear everybody. So that we are to what? Grow up. There is a growing up that God's designed us for. Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That we would grow up into Christ. That's his design. It's giving the imagery of, of like your, 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 your life is like a ship out on the, uh, on the ocean. And to make sure that, that your life would have a rudder of truth that would navigate amidst all the winds of people's opinions and false religion and, and media influence and education and, 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 and heresies and, and, and teachings that, that dismiss and deny the very living, loving God. Be very careful in your life because as those winds of teachings influence you, make sure you have the rudder of truth to navigate life so that you can grow up into the goodness and the greatness that God had created you for. There is a better and bigger life. And Christ modeled that for us. He showed us what it meant to grow up. And, and you could summarize it with, with this picture, kind of a little Venn diagram that integrates the mind and the heart and the will. The mind is biblical truth so that you can have that rudder in the midst of the world uh, kind of influencing you and you don't get caught up in the world. Don't be blown around. Don't have your life blown around in the way you do marriage and family and relationship and finance and character and moral life and ethics and values and your soul for eternity. Don't, don't get caught up in that. Make sure your mind is rooted in biblical truth and becomes a rudder to guide your life. Make sure that your heart is engaged in spiritual intimacy. Make sure that your will is following in holy obedience. And honestly, where the three of those come together, watch this. We'll give you the next picture. Where they come together is where you grow up. If you say, well, what do you mean by grown up faith? We mean the coming together of your heart and your mind and your will. And where they come together, you grow up. That's why in chapter one of the book, we unpack that and then land at this picture right here, that if we would grow up, we would be like Jesus. And Jesus, all three were perfectly aligned. This takes us to the better life that God created us for. Now that's challenging to grow up, and we all know it because we have questions. Questions like we already started with right off the top. In fact, we have I could put it this way on the, uh, on the whiteboard. We, we have 10,000 questions that we're asking in life. And those questions are practical questions. And they're questions about how you do life and how you, you navigate relationships and, and, and how you ma manage career and how you do money and materialism and how you handle temptation that comes your way and, and what's going to be truth in your life. And they're practical in life. And, but the truth of the matter is those 10,000 questions boil down to just 10 big questions. How many, everybody? 10. Say it with me. How many? Ten big questions. See, these ten core, ten foundational questions really form your worldview. How you view the world. Stay with me. And how you answer these ten forms define how you answer the ten thousand. You got to get these 10. And we're all asking the same 10 questions. And whether you know it or not, God answered these 10 questions in the Bible in order. 
That's how devoted to us God is to help us understand. Many of us don't know the 10 questions, nor did we know that God answered them in order in the Bible. So let's look at the 10 questions together. Is life an accident or am I here on purpose? It's the first question always because how you answer that defines your life. It kind of starts it. Why do bad things happen to good people? Can I really trust God? Why can't I make my own rules? Why can't God just accept me as I am? Isn't one way to God narrow-minded? What does it mean to be forgiven? Why don't Christians look different from everybody else? Who needs the church? Are heaven and hell real? By the way, the first question and the last question kind of define like all sports and any race. The start line and the finish line define the race. Listen, the first question. Is life an accident or am I here on purpose? And the last question, are heaven and hell real? Those right there set the parameter. See, listen, if... If I'm here by accident, it's just circumstance. It's just, just the, the big bang. I, I, I wasn't created. I have no soul. And there is no heaven or no hell. Well, then who cares? Live any way you want. It doesn't matter. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Who cares? Don't, don't worry about anything. Just live however you want. But if there's a God and he created you on purpose, and you have a soul. And there's a heaven and a hell. And everything's on the line for eternity. That transforms the way you think and the way you live and how you answer all the other questions in life. And God graciously answered all 10 questions in order in the Bible. By the way, those questions are so critical that those are the titles of the chapters of the book for grown-up faith. I mean, we got real. We got practical. We got to get into the substance of life. That's why I'm fired up to get this in the life of the church. We've been working on it for a long time, and, and God's going to take us to new places here within and outside the church, etc. because those are the substance. In fact, let, let, me, let me say it like this. As a parent, we've made this way too complicated. As a parent, you're really only answer, answering 10 core questions. See, see, your kids in, in life, it has 10,000 questions, and, and you're trying to answer all and help them answer all these questions, but this right here is the foundation of parenting. You answer these 10 questions in an elementary form while they're in elementary, and then you increase the clarity, and you answer it at its next level of complexity as they get into their teen and young adult life, and you send them out into the world as adults with adult answers to adult questions, all rooted in the 10. If somebody says, well, how do you raise your kids? How do you even raise them in faith? Those are the 10 questions I ask and answer. Now that the book's out, Jaden and I are gonna sit down and we're gonna read it chapter at a time. I'm gonna have my book, he's gonna have his. He's gonna read the first chapter. I kinda know it. So <laughs> I'll sorta read it. And they're gonna ask, what did you learn? What are you gonna do? What did you learn? What are you gonna do? And then chapter two, what did you learn? What are you gonna do? Parents, this is how we raise kids. And every parent is answering these 10 questions, whether they know it or not, either by design or default. And the world's attempting to answer these. How you answer them defines your life. But God did more. God not only answered the 10 big questions, God graciously gave us the big picture. 
The big what, everybody? The big picture. I mean, he told us what on earth he's doing. And so in the Bible, God gives us the overview, the picture, and I'm going to give it to you because most of us are puzzled by the Bible. For most of us, the Bible doesn't make sense. If I... If, if I had a 500-piece puzzle, and I gave you 5, 10, 15 pieces of the puzzle, I just gave it to you, and I said, put that together for me. With 5, 10, 15, 20 pieces, could you figure out what the puzzle is, the big picture? No. That's how many people experience the Bible, Christianity, or faith. They got, little, they got bits and pieces. They got stories. They're like, oh, yeah, Adam and Eve. That's right. That's the, the, the guard, the beginning thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and there's a guy, uh, Moses. I've heard of Moses and the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's a story. And then, and then Goliath, David. David and Goliath. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. And, and, and then there's the Jesus character and Christmas. Pretty popular. So I've heard of that. Uh, there's heaven hell issues. So yeah. and, but, but nobody's put the story together for you. And I'll admit, the Bible can be a complex book. It's not written in order. You don't read it like a novel. In fact, even if I had the 500-piece puzzle and I gave you all 500 pieces, listen, if I gave them all to you, I said, put it together. Could you put it together if I didn't give you the box top with the big picture? Even that would be incredibly difficult. Here's why. Listen. Because the big picture is what makes sense of the pieces, and that's true in life. You see, what makes sense of daily life, from a single life to a dating life to a married life, to family, to friendships, to business, to finance, to ethics, to temptation, to morals, to funerals. You can't make sense of those pieces of life unless you have the big picture. It's the big picture that makes sense of the pieces. And today I'm going to give you the big picture. If nobody's ever done this for you, I'm going to give you the overview of the Bible from beginning to end. It's in the book, uh, Grown Up Faith, but, but I'm going to give it to you right now. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you're going to say, why didn't anybody give that to, you, to me before? I don't know. Here it is. I'm going to give it to you. And, and, and if you're unfamiliar with it, it's going to start making sense. And, and over this series, this is going to come together. But I'm going to do it. Ready? Here we go. I, and by the way, if you're not ready, I'm going to have to redo everything I did. So cross caps, let me say again. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah that was Okay. It'll be better by the time I get done. Here we go. The Bible is one big story. The Bible is what? One big story. It's in two halves. The Old Testament and the New Testament. You could call it the old contract and the new contract. And it comes together in what you could call like a pyramid or, or a triangle. And there are five major events in the Old Testament and five major events in the New Testament. And those events are mirror images one of the other. And they come to a peak, a point, an apex, and it all turns on the person of Jesus Christ. Once you know the five events and that they're a mirror image and it all turns on Jesus, the Bible starts to make sense. So here we go. The first major event is God and righteous people in paradise. Oh, God created us. In his image, puts in the Garden of Eden, it was all good. I mean, good relationship with God, great relationship with each other. Everything was good. Well, then what happened? Next major event. Satan and sin enter. And, and sin unplugs us from God, separates us from us. It, from, from, it brings disease. It brings death, sorrow, loss. All this stuff we, we're talking about right off the top of the teaching. And so the next major event, the world is judged and destroyed. 
This is the moment with Noah where mankind continues to sin and we brought on ourselves death and so God brings judgment and rescues Noah and his family. In other words, it's a do-over. We often think, man, if we just had a do-over, everything would be better. Well, we got a do-over and yet mankind returned to continue to sin and as they increased and multiplied on the earth, the next event is a one-world government. This is the last time there was a one-world government. They all spoke the same language. They were building a tower up to the heavens. And, and God confused their languages, dispersed them in multiple tribes, and, and sent them, if you will, back out to, to increase and multiply. And mankind is just left there with this. We were starting to build a tower that was kind of displaying our own God unto ourselves. And, and, and now they're dispersed, and, and we have this problem of separation and sin, and it's not good anymore like it used to be. And the next major event... And the Old Testament starts with Genesis 12, and it's the rest of the Old Testament. It is the Old Covenant. Everybody say it with me. It is the what? Old Covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And through Abraham, he was going to raise up a great nation, give them a great land, and through them would come a great Messiah. God's going to resolve this separation with God because of sin. God's going to take care of it for us. God's on a mission to restore us and redeem us. So the Old Testament, you have the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, God's holy people, and all the prophecy that points to the coming of Jesus. That takes us to Jesus Christ. That is the apex where everything turns. The Old Testament is pointed to it. Now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels tell the story of Jesus. God in human flesh, God with us. And he lives a life of obedience. He demonstrates grown-up faith, his mind, his heart, his will, fully aligned with the living God. Then he voluntarily dies on the cross to cover our sin debt, and then rises from the dead to prove he conquered sin and death, thereby offering us a new covenant. A what, everybody? A new covenant. See, now we have the mirror image. What was in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, God's holy people, we now have through Jesus, having fulfilled the Old Covenant, he wrote a new covenant, and that is with the 12 disciples, the church, God's holy people. And the next major event, by the way, if you're at the mall and you look on the map and you say, where am I? They give you a little dot that says, you be here. <laughs> we are right in the midst of the new covenant. And what's coming? A one world government. It's never happened since the Tower of Babel recorded in Genesis 11. But it's coming again. And it's a mirror image. That made no sense when the prophecy was stated, but an antichrist will come and rise up and there will be a unity of language, a unity of economics, and that starts to make sense when you live in a world of the technology and the world's getting smaller. The next major event is the world is judged and destroyed. Peter wrote it this way. It was previously by flood at the time of Noah. Next time it will be by fire. The next major event is Satan and sin exit. God's now going to put an end to Satan. He's going to be cast into the lake of fire and all who followed him and dismissed God and said, God, leave me alone. We'll join him. We would call it hell. And it ends with God and redeemed people in paradise. 
See, where everything began, it ends. God is very much on purpose. And it began in the Garden of Eden, and we had the tree of life, and we lost access to it. And now Revelation ends with, now the tree of life is available to us for the healing of the nations. And God is on purpose. He's been on purpose. And where it all started, he's going to make sure it all ends for our good. That's just how on purpose God really is. So we could know his story. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, God, for telling us what you're doing. And we can know his story. And this can make sense and connect in our lives. And we tell that story and write in the book, Grown Up Faith, listen, not to debate it. Not to debate the story, but to tell the story because you can't hardly discuss or debate what you don't know. So it's not an apologetics. It's an invitation to learn the story. And it drives through the questions, like the first one I put in your notes. Let's hit the first two. Is life an accident, or am I here on purpose? That, that's, that's the question we're, we're, we're asking. We're, we all understand that's a weighty question. Is life an accident, or am I here on purpose? So how do you grow up into Christ in this? Well, grab your Bibles, turn over to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It should be the easiest scripture to find. It's on page 1. Tell your neighbor if they're having a difficult time. So grab your Bibles, cross campuses, or if you're on a, a mobile device, it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Is life an accident, or am I here on purpose? Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, in the beginning, God. That's, that, the, in the beginning, God created. By the way, the Bible starts right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It does not explain God. It just recognizes him. He doesn't need explanation. Stay with me. Are we here on accident or on purpose? Well, we're here on purpose. God created life. Write it down. Put it in your notes. God created life. Everyone across campuses online, anybody who's listening to another church in another location, here we go. Say it with me. God created life. One more time, all loud and proud. God created life. One more time. God created life. That's what he's telling us. God answered the first question for us because he knows that the most important question you're ever going to answer in your life is, am I an accident or am I here on purpose? God created life. And by the way, that means we have a beginning. God has no beginning. God has always existed. But we have a beginning. And in our beginning, God already existed, which means this. We're not the center of the story. Listen, when you're trying to figure out your origins and you keep starting with yourself, you're in trouble. Because it didn't start with you. We're not the beginning of the story. We're not the center of the story. This is all God. And what did he do? Turn the page. Chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He made them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We are here on purpose. That's what God wants us to know. And it's, we're not some random accident. And by the way, when you answer this question, it influences 
the 10,000 other questions you have in life. Let, let me take a moment. I, I, I jotted down. I, I, just, I, I wrote, here's examples. I, I want you to understand how, the, how this question answers and influences and informs so many other questions. Let me illustrate. Identity. I, I, here's how I wrote it down. You, you wrestle through it yourself. The, the, if the world is by accident and there is no God, then materialism is everything. And your accomplishments is your identity. You're only as good as what you do. So no wonder way back when Ted Turner said things like, life is a game and money is how you keep score. Hey, listen, that makes sense. If you're an accident. But if you're created in the image of God, then your identity and worth is knit to your creator. And that's a completely different way to answer life. Oh, I listed some more. Creation care. Do we treat this world as our own to be used by us any way we want? Or is it a gift that we steward? The value of life. How do we settle our minds on matters like abortion? Boy, is that getting hot these days. I mean, is it just a piece of tissue? A flesh? Or is it a life created by God? Precious and on purpose. Marriage. Is God behind that relationship? The creator of marriage? Or do we just redefine it any way we want? Gender. Is there a design in creation? Or do we make it up as we go? Sexual expression. Are we just animals with instincts and sexual appetites? Or are we moral beings in the image of God with greater meaning? Listen, that question, is life an accident or am I here on purpose, is a big question. It's huge. And how you answer it will define your life. So how awesome. God made us. God loves us. God values us. I mean, God, we are so important and critical and central to, to God. And God created angelic beings and their spirit beings. God created animals and their material beings. But when God created us, he created something unique. In the image of God, spirits wrapped in a physical body. Now, I know everybody doesn't believe that. I know many of you listening do not believe that. But we still all live by faith. We all live by what? Faith. Hear me, we all live by faith. If, if you believe in God, if you're a Christian, it took a leap of faith. If you're an atheist, it takes a leap of faith. But we all live by faith. I believe in God and I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a Christian because I just don't have a lot of faith and I took the shortest leap. For me. See, when you tell me that I have to believe that there was nothing and then without the influence of a creator, nothing big banged into something with life. That's not science. That's faith. Stay in this. And you tell me I have to believe that less complex forms of life unexplainably evolved into higher forms of life and intellect. Species evolution, that's faith. I just don't have that much faith. Everybody's gotta wrestle this down and figure out what are you gonna believe? But it's why I wrote 
something in the book. And I, I again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, my, my job isn't to convince you. I'm just going to tell you what I've wrestled with and, and, and how, I, how I got there. And over here, I, I, I wrote about it, which I think would just kind of help make sense. I hope it does. I, I, don't, I don't know. But I own a 2006 Harley Davidson Heritage Softail Classic, one of the finest motorcycles on the road. Amen would have been appropriate across all the campuses. <laughs> you weren't ready. But I know that's what you wanted to say. Riding is one of my favorite ways to clear my head and reset my soul. Suppose I was to tell you that billions of years ago, the cosmos began to form out of nothingness. Plants and animals were slowly formed through random mutations and natural selection of those best suited to survive. Over time, some species developed intelligence and began to dominate the earth. They developed their own moral code and grew in wisdom and knowledge. At the same time that amino acids were doing their thing, metals in the earth began to collect and randomly take shape. Cylinders formed. So did rods and bearings. Some metals took on the properties of structural frames, while others took on the properties of fenders and handlebars. Minerals spontaneously joined together to create pigments, and they coalesced and attached themselves to the frame and the fenders. Petroleum deposits were heated below the surface of the earth. Over the course of millennia, waxes developed, and decals came into existence with random letters forming the words Harley Davidson, and behold, it's not in the book that way, but I just, that's the implication. The soft tail classic emerged. Ooh. You know, maybe you think I'm insulting your intelligence by suggesting that a motorcycle could be formed as a result of random events. It's not my intention, but I think you get my point. I can't believe that the formation of a motorcycle, boat, car, or building could be the work of self-directed nature over the course of millions of years. You probably don't either. Yet many people take it on faith that the universe and animals and human beings, which are infinitely more complex than any motorcycle, were formed randomly in the same manner without the guidance of some kind of intelligence in a universe with entropy, inertia, and expansion where those are the rules. I don't think life accidentally organized itself, so I take the shortest leap. Each to his own. Everybody's got to figure out how you're going to wrestle that down. But know this. We all live by faith. Everybody does. No matter what you believe. You're a Christian by faith. You're an atheist by faith. And I think, while I know science cannot prove the existence of God, it cannot disprove the existence of God. I just think it points to God. And so what Sir Isaac Newton, the scientist, said makes sense to me. The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being and on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord and God. That makes sense to me. It's probably why Solomon wrote in Psalms 24, 1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Because all that's left is that you're God or that you're an accident. And that's a level of faith that makes no sense to me in life. But know this, the way God answers it, you're not an accident. And everything started in the garden on purpose. But if everything was so good, why are things bad? I mean, really nine months of a beautiful, perfect pregnancy. And my grandson gets born. 
little deprived oxygen moment, unexplained difficulties, brain damage. How do you make sense of that in a world of good? Turn to Genesis chapter three. Let's go. Let's go to the next section. Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than the any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. In other words, he was saying, oh, you can't have anything. Oh, is that what, is that what God said? You can't have anything good? No, no, no. God gave us all good. There's only one thing you can't eat from. That, that's where it's going. Oh, the woman said, well, we, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You know, he didn't really say don't touch it, but clear enough. It's a, if you eat it, you die. You, that's, that's what sin is. Sin is death. Verse four, you will not certainly die. See, that's the doctrine of the world. Doctrine of the world takes the word of God, the wisdom of God, the truth of God, and says, well, God says in a lie, and my lie is a truth. I mean, he confuses the whole thing. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was her victim. I'm sorry, my bad. I was, I was reading from the Hebrew, uh, the original translation. I'll read from the English. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. <laughs> By the way, many times women say, where would you men be without us? <laughs> the answer is the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I don't, I don't write them, I just read them. I find no joy in that at all, I'm just saying. All right, since we're having fun, let me give you the next one. Do you know why Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage? Do you know why Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage? Look to your neighbor and say, I don't know, why? Go ahead, I don't know, why, ready? Why did Adam and Eve have the perfect marriage? Here it goes, because Adam didn't have to hear about all the men Eve could have married and she didn't have to hear about the way his mother cooked. Boom, there you go. Ah, uh, if you sin, you will surely die. That's what God said. See, why do bad things happen to good people? Because sin is death. Write it down. Because sin is what? Sin is death. Say it with me. Sin is death. Say it again. Sin is death. See, God called something venomous, and we called it harmless. God said, this is venomous, and Adam and Eve said, ah, this is harmless. We do that. So let me show you the difference between harmless and venomous. This is a rubber snake. This is harmless. This is what? Harmless. This is, what, is, is anybody afraid? Anybody gonna go running away? 
You know, I say, let me just come up here. Just, just, just come right to the front stage. Okay. You can just test prove that it's just a rubber snake, right? Okay, here you go. You're good. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Watch it. That, that, that hurt you? Nope. Messing you? See, it's harmless. Thanks, man. Have a seat. You wouldn't mind playing with this, right? Doesn't even matter. But the difference between harmless and venomous, well, I had to find a way to help you see the difference. So, would everybody welcome Tom? Tom, the snake handler, would you come on out here and would you help us with uh, Venomous? Yeah, everybody say, hey, Tom. Yeah, Tom's got a little buddy right here. And, and I'm going to show you the difference between harmless and venomous. But here's what's about to happen. A venomous is going to land on the stage and when, and when that happens, all of you at the other campuses are thinking, I am so glad I'm not in Central Campus. <laughs> and so for the first time ever, we thought we would do something a little different. We've hired snake handlers for every campus. Would you please now come out on all the campuses? Come on, don't you love that? Right here at Central, we're like, yeah, yeah, you enjoy this. So all the snake handlers come out on the, at the other campuses and, uh, hey, Tom, Hey, what you doing? got, man? Oh, I got my little friend in here. Yep, yep, yep. You, that's awesome. All right. So this is... Uh -huh. Just feel the tension in the room, can't you? Yeah, I mean, you, you know what? <sighs> this is a timber rattlesnake. In the United States, oh. there are 21 species of venomous snakes. 14 of them are rattlesnakes. This is the only one you'll find in George, this part of Georgia. That's, Southern Georgia has a couple other ones. So the timber rattlesnake, also called a cane break rattlesnake. Okay, that's Why awesome. You, you want to give it a shot? Uh, you know, I'm good. I got mine I'll trade, I'll right trade over you. here. So I'll trade you. we're both kind of doing the same thing. Oh, yeah, just exactly the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's all, this, all, this, all the same. And um, how... How fast can they strike? This guy, he can uh, go from a strike position, which he's in right now, to injecting uh, venom and back to his strike position in a quarter of a second. Quarter of a second. Two tenths of a second. Which, yep. So, which so you you're not outrunning this guy, but luckily he's um, not extremely fast along the ground. He's like lightning quick, striking, but I mean, it, it would take him at least two or three seconds to get to the front row. So we're good. Awesome. They had good seats before. And, yeah. Huh? <laughs> and, and, uh, uh-huh, and tell Try us about the venom. Uh, uh, these what guys, does the venom yeah, the, do? This is one of the most, uh, three most deadly uh, rattlesnakes in the United States, and they have a very powerful venom. Of course, the venom is, serves two purposes. One is going to be to immobilize or stun the prey so it doesn't run away, and then the other one is to actually start digesting the food from the inside out. Uh, so once the venom gets in along the blood cells and the, and the, um, the tissue starts breaking down that, that uh, from the inside out. And usually we rattle nice, but we're being a little quiet today. So, uh, uh -huh. That's now, just uh, fine. Yeah. So, and so if you get bit by one of these snakes, the good thing is you're not going to die immediately. Oh. Uh, so it's going to just take some time. It takes just a little suffer. while. So uh, that venom has to get into the body. You usually die from secondary complications like... Um, uh, renal failure and liver shutting down and all that kind of fun. So Somebody you're takes a die. while. Yeah, I mean, you, just you, painfully and slow. You have time to, you know, make peace with God and call your friends and family before you go. So, uh, 
But if you get treatment, you know, it's okay. But, he's, uh, but do, the best thing to do is stay away from him in the first place, right? And, and what about the rattle thing? Well, What's the uh, yeah, rattle we're talking about? about his rattle. He is a rattlesnake, I promise, but he's just not rattling today. He's, uh, he, uh, his rattle is there as a warning, as a safety uh, to keep you away from him. Because most things like this that are dangerous, he does not want to use his venom on you. He wants to... Uh, he wants to be left alone, so yeah, he's, but the rattle is definitely a warning for you to stay away. Okay, well, you know what? That's enough for me. Uh, I, that's all I need. I hope that's all the rest oh, I, of you need. Let's say thank you, Tom, nah. and you can, uh, you can send the it snake. It was free to bring him out. I have, you have to pay me to take him yeah, away, Yeah, though. no, just no? go ahead and put okay. him back. I'll keep mine. You all keep right. yours. We're good to go. Let's give it up. Uh, say, say thank you, Tom. Yeah, I'm just going to, we'll just make sure you're really done. And then, uh, there you go, I'm, I'm fine now. <laughs> so now you understand the difference between harmless and venomous. And all God was saying is this, with the warning, kind of like the rattle, if you hear that rattle, it's a warning, you should run. If you sin, you will surely die. And so everything was good in the garden. And then God said something that was venomous, we treated harmless. And honestly, that's why things like Braden happen. Because in a world of sin and disease and sorrow and loss and my mom died of cancer. My brother died in a motorcycle accident. And, you know, bad things happened in the midst of good because we brought venom into the world. Satan and sin entered. The world's judged and destroyed. One world government, and it leaves us wondering, is this it? We messed up and we have no hope. We have no help. And that's what we pick up next week. And what do you do when my son, Josh, texted me about Braden? You know, he said, Dad, we're, we're trusting God. Now, can you trust God? We'll pick up on that next week. But before we go, let me just ask you a question. Where in your life are you treating sin as harmless? I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind away? It was my tool. You like me. I was breathing, but now alive. And all my failures I tried to hide. It was my turn. Till I met you.